I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right. And you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I am speaking with returning guest Anthony Rotuno. Hey Anthony, thanks for t- chatting with me today. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, I've done the hat trick now. You have? All, yes. All three podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I need to be on all three of yours then, at some point. <laughs> yeah, no one's done that yet either. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> if anybody... Yeah. No one's done that yet, right? Ooh, we'll get there. Mm. So uh, for anybody interested, uh, Anthony has appeared in season one of episode, episode seven of season one, when we spoke about the podcast Glass Onion on John Lennon. How's that show going, Anthony? It's going all right, yeah. It's uh, more or less monthly now. I think when I met you that first time, I was sort of pumping out episodes as quickly as I could to get it established. Yeah. Now it's established. It's kind of uh, the three podcasts I have are all sort of even now. They're all basically once a month. It's kind of right. I still haven't run out of stuff. So doing it less frequently probably helps with that, obviously. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Could you imagine trying to release three three different podcasts weekly? Yeah, no, it's impossible. Yeah, it is. So I'm hanging in there, yeah. And the, the other one was episode two of season four when we spoke about life and life only. Yeah, and a very kindly, uh, you let me put the audio in the, in the Life and Life Only feed as well. Yeah, that was a long conversation. <laughs> yes. Life and Life Only is basically uh, to search for truth. And uh, truth is almost a loaded word in our culture now. But <laughs> yeah, sort of inner truth self-development, psychology, that kind of thing. And then outer truth is sort of alternative media and how to absorb uh, all the information that's coming at us. But yeah, that was a good one as well. <laughs> that's cool. So we are speaking today about the other podcast, which is Film Gold, where you where you look at films that are, would you call them classic films? Yeah, well, the blurb I've got for the podcast, if I can find it, deep dive into the host's and guest's favourite films, many of which we consider among the pinnacles of film achievement. Uh, There's been a little bit of compromise, you know. (laughs) My niece requested, my niece Olivia requested to be on the show, and I couldn't say no. The film we chose there I probably wouldn't consider among the pinnacles of film achievement, but still all right, you know. That's it, basically, yeah. Classics, yeah. I mean, I, I guess we'll get on to this, but my film absorption in about the last 10 years have sort of gone backwards. Mm-hmm. I almost don't follow films which are coming out in the moment. I sort of vaguely try and keep my finger on the pulse, but yeah, classics. When I was a kid, I was really into black and white films, and I'm never quite sure, never worked out why that is. And there was one reason to do with a friend of mine. His mother had an amazing collection. But, yeah, I've always been drawn towards the older ones and what are now the older ones, which is the 80s, which, of course, when I was a kid and when we were kids, were current yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. 
I know it's it's strange to think that the eighties is you know yeah all that Classic far back. Now. Yeah, but what's yeah. nice is that um, my sisters have got uh, five kids between them, and they're actually all grown up. And my niece is twenty five this year, which is insane. That's crazy. Yeah, I remember her when she was about five. <laughs> and it's funny that we uh, we start to introduce them to the stuff we grew up with. So Ferris Bueller's Day Off or something like that. And my niece. And a couple of my nephews. They did genuinely like them, yeah. But it was quite. Uh, my, my niece and uh, two of my nephews are a mixed race. Yeah. And I haven't had the heart to show them Soul Man. Do, do, do you remember that film from the 80s? Yes. I think they'd take it with a sense of humour, to be honest, but uh, that, would, that would be a bit strange. Yeah. We watched that not long ago, actually. Or did you? I mean, I think it's a good film, and I think uh, um, I don't know if it's even I don't know what it's saying about race. I suppose it's like white men can't jump. It's sort of trying to take a comedic route, you know. That's yeah. anyway, yeah. But it's fun, it's fun to show my the next generation all those classics and see what they think of them. But we watched Police Academy, and no, none of us were impressed by by it. Oh, <laughs> didn't age particularly well, but other ones have, I think. It's some real classics that, in that era. Even the first one, that's not that's not aged well either, because that, that was a <clears throat> classic back then. Yeah, I, I don't, when I say age well, I don't mean like um, in terms of PC-ness and wokeness, just in terms of, uh, you know, that's the magic, one of the magic of films is that the film has, has stayed the same unless it gets sort of cleaned up or whatever. When you go back to it, you've had X amount of experiences and you go back 10 years later and you think, yeah. and some of them, like I watched uh, I watched Rain Man and I thought it was all right, but it, it hadn't, because when I was into that film, I was probably about 12 or 13. And I, don't think, I don't think it's obviously not a kid's film, but yeah. it's very interesting to go back and see how the film has aged, again, in the sense of just has it got staying power or not. Um so yeah, yeah. But um, for, for anybody interested, coming up um, probably around the period when this episode comes out, we've we've discussed uh, the classic Rocky. Mm, we kind of did the series, didn't we? But mostly focused on the first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that will probably uh, be out in August. So that may not have come out, but we did convene a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? That was good stuff. Yeah. Enjoy this that. will definitely be out before, after that episode's out then. Oh, really? After August? Yes. Oh, yep. right, right. We're into September now with these episodes. Oh, Recording yeah. in July for September. <laughs> Stockpiling. Yeah. It's got to be done. <laughs> it's got to be, well, yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. That's how you get breaks. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So what is your earliest memory of film? Right, earliest memory, yes. Uh, well, obviously there's kids' films. Yeah. Probably the two I would remember the most would be The Wizard of Oz and The Sound of Music. Um, and I haven't gone back to those at all, really, for years. Okay. I mean, they pop up, clips from them pop up every now and again in different places. But those would probably be the two. And really, the but then the big one really was... Uh, Jaws. Yeah. Because if I can get nostalgic for a second, in the 80s, before we had a video recorder, 
and and kids now would would would, would wouldn't even be able to process this. But I used to get the Radio Times, and you'll know yep. in England. Uh, in those days, there was the TV Times as well. So Radio Times was BBC, TV Times was ITV. Yeah. And you'd have to wait a year or two for your favourite film to come on TV. So I used to get the TV listings every week, just seeing if one of my favourites came on. And then every couple of years, suddenly, without any warning, I'd say, oh, Jaws is going to be on. And I was just sort of um, just drawn to that film. But what's really funny, I don't know if it's when was the last time you saw it, but the idea of it actually being really scary is quite strange to me now. Yeah. Um, I think it's still got the, the, the jump scares are really effective. But it's a, it's a strange film because it's sort of kind of a horror, kind of an action adventure, kind of a buddy film. Um. But, uh, yeah, I can't – you can never quite get back that anticipation when you have to wait for things that long and they yeah. just come up by accident. You know, it's so different now. It really is. So I feel bad, I suppose, that my – well, my again, my niece and my nephews have never quite experienced that. Well, maybe they will, you know, in different ways, but I, I can't – you can never quite get by that sense of anticipation. So Jaws used to come on and we always knew the story quite well, but yep. we'd only seen it once every, whatever it is, two or three years. So those would be my earliest, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was saying to somebody recently on a, on a show about, you know, um, <clears throat> the, the amount of time we had to wait for Star Wars, for instance, to be released on video. That didn't get released on mm. video until the 1990s. So, yeah. Even you know, and kids wouldn't understand that now because they'll just go, "Oh, well, we we can watch it now on Disney Plus. We'll just go straight there and stream it and watch it." And we've not got that problem. So, like you said, they, they wouldn't understand that sort of issue where the only time you could watch these films is when they show up on the television. Yeah, yeah. The, I suppose the thing with Jaws as well is that we got um, my dad bought us a video recorder. And yeah. I can remember, actually, it was about 10 or 11, and Jaws was due to be on the TV, and he probably timed it for that. And I, I, I have this uh, very, very sharp memory. He said on that day, he said, oh, would it be strange if you could record films and then watch them as many times as you want? I was like, yeah. he didn't have to wait two years. And then he just said, oh, look what I've bought. And he bought a video record. And it's one of those uh, top loader ones. Yeah. You press a button and, and the thing goes, and then you yeah. load the video in, press another button, it goes really, really slowly. So I recorded Jaws and then completely killed it by watching it every day for the next three months. And yeah, that, that magic has gone forever because I could watch it now and probably know all the whole script, more or less. <laughs> so I had that tendency when I was a kid to just kill things by with overkill, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is a shame, but <laughs> yep. yeah, we're gonna need a bigger boat. Yeah, we're gonna need a bigger boat. Well, the making yeah. of as well is is a great story in itself, isn't it? All those documentaries are online now. Yeah, it's the two hour yeah. one they made in nineteen ninety five. That's incredible stories. And um, yeah, Richard Dreyfus telling his story for the hundredth time. He does but that story one, about there were radio mics on the island, wouldn't he? Oh, right, yeah. The shark is yeah. not working. 
The shark is not working. (laughs) (laughs) But I was saying to somebody else about Jaws that that's what makes the film is the fact that the shark didn't work most of the time. So they had Mm. to improvise. And with that, because you don't always see the shark at moments, it creates a tension in the film that wouldn't have been there otherwise, that, that is always there throughout the film. There's always this sense of foreboding, something in the background that you don't see is there and you know something's going to happen eventually. It's the build-up that that creates yeah. just from the mistake that the shark didn't work. Well, he followed the Beatles model, didn't he? Yeah, not to talk about the Beatles or anything. But, yeah, happy accidents and take advantage of mistakes. And also the horror. I mean, the, the biggest horror comes from the primal thing, the hidden thing, the thing that you can't see. You know, so in The Shining, when he's on the tricycle, he's going around a corner. You don't have any idea what's around that corner. So I, yeah. I think, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but to do with, I think nowadays with modern films, are it just seems to be this need in our culture to show us everything, like take completely kill that mystery, you know. You know. Yeah. But, the, uh, the amount of times, yeah, the amount of times I've seen trailers, and I think I don't need to see the film now because that trailer's told me everything from beginning to end. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I don't know why we're not trusted anymore. The audience are not trusted to figure stuff out for ourselves. It's weird, isn't it? I think it's to do with um, films just becoming more and more expensive. And the more money you spend on something, the less risk you want to take. So that's why we get all this formula stuff, because they know that it, it it's a great moneymaker and you've got to minimise the risk. One way to minimise the risk is to show the viewer everything because then they don't go away. Well, I would go away dissatisfied, but a lot of people wouldn't go away dissatisfied because at least they've had a resolution. Now, some of those sort of 70s, what sometimes called Hollywood New Wave, which is one of, probably my favourite era, they would mm-hmm. have downbeat endings, you know, like Dirty Harry chucking his badge into the river. You know, we don't know what will happen, don't know why. There's no resolution. So you might come away from the yeah. cinema in those days sort of not feeling very happy, you know. Go, oh, what was the ending there? I didn't understand that, you know. Um yeah, so I think uh, it's a way of covering themselves financially, I think, is to make really formula films because then, then the audience comes in, they know what they're going to get, and they go away more or less satisfied if that's what they're after. You know. I think they're um, making the audience out to be... Um, I, I don't know. Uh, how, how can I word this? I think there's a problem where some modern films or a lot of films can um, give people so much because it's like they don't want the audience to have to think while they're watching the film. So they give you everything there in the film. There's no thought that you can put into it because sometimes I find that films where you have to think afterwards or during the film, I think Mm. they're more interesting because they're then you're – sucked in by the film as opposed to the film just being there in the background, I think, mm. really. Yeah, well, I mean, if we, we're on Life and Life Only, this would be a different uh, discussion probably. <laughs> you know, why are we not taught critical thinking? Why are we not, why are we sort of spoon-fed everything? I, I don't know why, honestly. I mean, I probably would have some theories, but 
Yeah, I don't know. Like I say, I think I think on a superficial level, it's it's just safer to make a formula film. You're spending fifty million dollars. I mean, I think going back to Jaws, you know, there's a there's actually a documentary that appeared that was actually made during the making of the film. Yeah, and Spielberg at one point says, you know, if I thought about this for a second, that someone had entrusted me with twenty million dollars, which in 1975 is an absolute fortune. If I thought about it too much, I'd go mad. So you just, I I do know for a fact now through um, a couple of friends that when a script is actually submitted, it does more or less go through a committee of people who know how to create those tropes. Yeah. Because I I think, yeah, if you want to make money with a film and you don't want to take too many risks, you need a few tropes. It's it's like with these, it's like, This is a weird parallel, but with EastEnders, you know, soap opera. Yeah. Essentially, the, the writer comes up with a, or someone comes up with an idea, and then a bunch of hacks sort of lick it into shape because they know how to write dialogue. Yeah. And they know how to write a certain. So rom-com is a good example. Yeah, you know exactly what the audience, if we take yesterday, if you, yeah, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is my scathing review of yesterday, which is online. <laughs> That that was just absolutely designed to make money because it's got everything from you know a little bit from Bridget Jones. Oh, that that bit from Notting Hill was good. That bit from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Stick them in a blender mm-hmm. and you get this yep. script which has got almost zero originality. Um, we know they've been watching Good Night Sweetheart, you know that, that BBC sitcom. Yeah. Yep. About the idea of someone nicking Beatles songs. Anyway, sorry, I don't want to talk about that now. I've, I've avoided <laughs> watching that film. <laughs> now, if you could put my scathing review in the show notes, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. send, send me a link and I'll link it. I will. I will. <laughs> so you you choose the films because you think personally that they are classic films or are they in a list online of classic films? How, how are you choosing them? Uh, well, kind of both really. Originally, yes. I I, I made a database about 10 years ago. Yep. This is really, uh, this is very anarchy of me, but uh, I went through Wikipedia for every year and I've actually more or less got a database of every film I've ever seen. It's just over 1,500 and I got them onto flickchart.com, yep. which is a website that helps you rank your films. So now, now I just refer to Flickchart, really. But yes, I want to, with a couple of exceptions, um, all the ones we've done so far, we did one special on Marlon Brando, it's a bit different, but yeah. yeah, they're all sort of top-tier films. And I don't really, other than sort of the odd scathing review, I don't really like watching films that I don't think I'm going to like, unless they're just really, really goofy and I'm just in the mood for that, but... Yeah, I have a list now, and it's sort of dominated by certain areas, but, yeah, so how I would choose it. And, of course, a huge list in the future. Never going to get there, but... <laughs> you, you missed the chance yeah. to do a deep dive on James Kahn. James Kahn. Oh, yes, yes, yes. How did he die? I just saw that. I don't know. I just saw I'm not a clue. Uh, I yeah, I just watched The Gambler recently. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we've done The Godfather yet. Yeah, It almost feels like there, there are certain ones where you think, like, what are we going to say? Yeah. You know, what could you say about The Godfather? So I, 
I don't know. I've avoided some for that reason. Um, but we are going to get to the granddaddy, Citizen Kane, at some point. Yep. Uh, because Rob Ager, you may have heard of, he's kind of a friend of mine, this guy from Liverpool, he's a sort of legend of film analysis on YouTube. He yep. requested, and uh, I've got to do an awesome Wells film as well, so he requested Kane, so we'll get there at some point. But, you know, slowly, slowly. <laughs> yeah. Yep, and then uh, of course you've got the film that came out where it's all about the making of that as well. Recently, oh, not a documentary, yeah, but the... a biopic or whatever you call it. Is it? Yeah, there were two, weren't there? There's. Is it me and Orson Welles, or is it the one about the writer? There's one called Mank that came out. Yep, is Mank, that the one? I think I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think about yeah. Uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who was an alcoholic, who was the co-writer of the script. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think Orson Welles is one of those. It's like Muhammad Ali, like when that Ali film, I mean, Will Smith did a great job, as good as you could possibly get, looking like Ali and acting like Ali. Yeah. But then when you're recreating film newsreels and stuff, it's just like, well, you could just watch the original newsreel with Muhammad Ali. And maybe I feel a bit like that about Orson Welles, but I would like to watch that. Yeah. But I don't think anyone could quite catch Orson Welles. Certain people, no. it's difficult to impersonate, you know. But yeah, I'm making it. I, I, I still have the the surprise, the, the memory of being surprised that Orson Welles appeared in Magnum PI. Oh, did he? Because <laughs> he he was Robin Masters. Oh right, I see. Because yeah, I first knew him from the Carlsberg ads, although I didn't know it was him. Carlsberg, probably yeah. the best lager in the world. But that amazing voice he had, but I didn't know it was him. <clears throat> Yeah. I think the first thing I saw Orson Welles in would probably be um, Casino Royale, the late 60s version with Peter oh, Sellers one, and yeah. Woody, Woody Allen. And Orson Welles was in that because he was Le Chiffre. Oh, right. Because yeah, he started popping up kind of a bit like Marlon Brando did towards the end of his career, sort of popping up as a um, just, just in a few scenes and almost like a glorified cameo almost. He started to sort of just pop up in things. Like he was in Moby Dick. Yeah, he was in Moby Dick briefly. He was the, I think he was the pastor at the beginning who makes that speech, gives that sermon. Yeah, he just sort of pop up, wouldn't he? But I think he's managed to make three or four absolute classics that stand the test of time. So, you know, he's a fascinating character, very flawed, but genius. He, he was that era's uh, James Earl Jones. <laughs> I hadn't made that connection, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll cover one of his, like I said, Kane and uh, well, yeah, and then I mean, if you wanted to, you could you could look into say um, the Third Man as well, I suppose, with Orson Welles. Well, I've already reviewed that actually on another another show. Um, I've got, sort of got a regular gig as a guest on a couple of other film podcasts. And, we did that one, yeah. We were really impressed. But there's some behind-the-scenes stuff for that film, isn't there? The Third Man. Oh, there's all sorts, yeah. Because there were a lot of arguments between Carol Reed, the director, and Orson Welles himself. Technically, it was a co-direct job, essentially. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Because he only sort of appeared quite late in the day and they weren't sh sure whether he was going to appear and then he wouldn't leave his hotel room. 
there's all these sort of prima donna kind of stories. <laughs> yeah. A bit like Brando, actually. He knew how to play the, the game of maximizing the amount of money he was being paid. <laughs> yes. Superman, for instance, with, with Brando, how much money he made oh, for yeah. that? Yeah, ridiculous. A few million in those days was a lot. Well, still is, but yeah, he was in about two scenes, and I think he's even uh, top build, isn't he? Isn't it Marlon Brando so. and Christopher yeah. Reeve? Yeah, I think so. But they filmed a lot more with him than showed up, didn't they? Oh, did they? Right, right. And he was also supposed to be, if you remember at the end of The Godfather 2, they yep. flash back to the yep. Don's birthday. He was supposed to appear, but he wanted sort of his fee from the first film. I know. Actually, I wanted more because he did the first film for a very low fee. Yeah. Because it's the only way they Paramount would let him be in it. But Godfather 2 wanted a few million for turning up at the end. <laughs> for one scene, yeah. The party. It, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> so character. all it ended up being was them waiting for him and then he didn't and then you didn't see him actually show up. Yeah, so him and Orson Welles have got this these similarities. So we did a two parter on Marlon Brando with Ghosty, you know, and we were talking about that. We kept coming up with parallels. But they're they're weirdly worth it. Someone like Orson Welles has got enough magic, but yeah. He's almost worth it. I suppose the filmmakers worked out it was just about worth it. <laughs> Waiting three weeks for him to turn up. It's like all the difficulties that they had with Brando with uh, Apocalypse Now, mm. it works with Brando in there because he's got that, you've, 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 you've sensed that uh, Brando, well, there, there is like a um, almost a mysterious mm. side to the character that, that that's edgy and... Mm. He's the sort of actor who can could pull that off really well. So essentially, all the troubles that they had getting Brando and filming with him on that yeah. were, were essential to making that character the, the character that it is. Well, they did what they did with Jaws. They made uh, they made the most of uh, things not going right because he was supposed to turn up looking like ex special forces. Yeah. So not quite as ripped as special forces, but it's supposed to be in shape. He turned up massively overweight and hadn't read the script or the book. So they basically shaved his head and turned him into sort of Buddha figure. Yeah. Very clever. You know, like what I mean. I think we're actually gonna I'm gonna mention Apocalypse now slightly in a slightly different way later on. But uh, um, yeah, they made the most of it. That I mean what a story that is as well. Jeez. But I mean it's good, it's, it's in, in, in a sense, that with Apocalypse Now, that it is Cap Coppola that that made the film because he's already got that experience with films he's made before, such as The Godfather, where he would change things on a dime. He'd just like, you know, you'd be there and he'd suddenly say, okay, and he, and he famously had that, you know, that he'd written that where he got the book there and he wrote the notes or whatever to the sides and wrote in it. And whatever, so he's got these where he made yeah. these alterations on the spot. So he had that ability to be able to do that anyway, which I think a lot of his friends seem to do, you know, with like Spielberg and that. They all seem to be able to have this ability just to, we've got a problem, we'll sort it, this is what we'll do. And then they just did it. So 
I think they are very special filmmakers for having that ability. Yeah, and Coppola was a writer as well, wasn't he? He wrote Patton, got an Oscar for Patton, actually, before he was famous. Yeah, I think what they learn is that you have to keep working it the whole time, particularly just to go back to Jaws that final time. They hadn't got the script in shape, and with all these changes, you know, they didn't realise what a nightmare it would be filming it on the ocean. So they would have dinners with Robert Shaw, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, Carl Gottlieb, and they'd all talk about the script over dinner, and then Spielberg would stay up till silly o'clock, you know, refining the script, and then wake up early and do another day of sort of hanging around the ocean trying to get a decent shot. (laughs) But that constant, yeah, I was going to say, the constant reworking of the script and the the building it as they're going along gives the script Mm. a life in a way, mm. as well, as opposed to a film that starts... Um, I mean, I'm a lover of Hitchcock, who would never go for any of that. He, he, he famously would have already known what, how everything's going to be done before mm. even going to do the film. Mm. Uh, but this is this is different, where, like I said, you'd have... You'd, it'd almost give the film a bit more of a life with them constantly mm. doing the changes, and, and it, it sort of eventually forms into what it becomes. Yeah, because also you're working with what's happening at the mo- in the moment. Yeah. So, you know, if an actor, say an actor does a great improv or something goes wrong and they can't, the scene they wanted is not possible. Yeah. It could be because of the weather or anything. Then you, then you change it, yeah. It's a very good uh, skill. But I think, like I said earlier, they when you're dealing with so much... Um, so many millions of dollars that the studio has entrusted to you. And the studio, they may not even be filmmakers, you know, they may just be sort of hard-nosed business people. Yeah. When they come and visit the set, it must be like, uh, you know, your boss coming to visit you or something. Um, I think the filmmakers know how to play the game of, I don't know, showing a few rushes to the execs so they go away and leave you alone and then let you get on with making the film. It's, film business is like music as well. It's like a, it's a weird... It's like a war of art versus commerce the whole time, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Coppola is a, it's such a strange career he's had because when he was making The Godfather, yeah. he was expected to be fired at like any moment. Um, and he went to the, to the toilet, to the men's room once, and he was in a cubicle and he could hear two, two of the tech people, the crew, talking about, um, oh, yeah, they're going to get rid of that guy soon, aren't they? He doesn't know what he's doing. He had people all around him talking about how he didn't know what he's doing. <laughs> Dear me. Yeah, I mean, you just can't imagine it, really. Yeah. can't imagine that world. <laughs> well, that, that scene in Jaws where Robert Shaw's telling that story, I mean, that was mm. was that made completely up on the spot or was that something that he discussed with Carl Gottlieb and then they put that into the script. I, I can't remember, but that story was from Robert Shaw's own past, I believe. Uh, I think it was originally written by it's either John Milius or Howard Sackler. Yeah. I don't know if it went Milius then Sackler or the other way around. John Milius was involved with Apocalypse Now later as well. Yeah. Quite a legend. Um, and then Shaw rewrote it, but I don't think he rewrote it entirely. I think, it's, I think the finished product is a mixture of Milius, Sackler, and, and Shaw. But of course, famously, he did it drunk the first time. 
yep. made a complete fool of himself and then he did it sober the next night but they actually used both so there are some scenes of that where he's absolutely hammered but yeah i don't know hardened drinker like robert shaw you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah i don't think it was improv but i think that that was actually the, that was worked quite extensively you know a few people had a go in it but it's probably a lot longer originally just about right now, I think. Well, Robert Shaw's yeah. got a history with that anyway, because he's he's also been a writer as well, or he was a writer as well as an actor back in the day as well. Mm. So yeah, he's one of my big favourites. Mm. Yeah, like Sorry, Man for All Seasons, for instance, Robert Shaw. Yeah, The Sting, a uh, film yeah. I'm going to recommend later. So it's slightly lesser known, but yeah, he's great. He's great. And um, I, I loved him in From Russia with Love as well. I thought he was a great bad guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of gutted when he died because I thought he was more impressive than James Bond. Obviously, morally, they had to get rid of him in that film. But, yeah. Oh, what a great actor. And there's some great, um, if anyone is Robert Shaw fan, if you go to YouTube, there's lots of uh, interviews of him with Dick Cavett that have popped up recently. Right. And there's him and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, which is quite funny. <laughs> Got a strange combination. <laughs> but, I mean, I've heard, and it sort of bugs me in a way, that him and Richard Dreyfus actually didn't get on with each other very well, either, allegedly. Um, yeah, I think that mainly came from Robert Shaw, to be honest because he was a drinker and he had these demons and he was very, very competitive, famously. Yeah. I think we talked about this last time about table... He, he was a big table tennis player. And as you know, I was a table tennis player. Yeah. So my fantasy... Yeah. Well, one of my fantasies would be to play Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic at table tennis because <laughs> you'd imagine they'd be amazing, but you never know because tennis and table tennis are quite different games. But I'd like to have played Robert Shaw at table tennis. <laughs> Right. But I think, yeah, it mainly came from him. There was a bit of a jealousy that came out. But then, weirdly, they were planning to do something in the future, sort of vaguely planning, but Robert Shaw already lived another three years after George. Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah. Really, that's awful. And we think also, with hindsight, we think maybe he was doing it as well to get the antagonism going between the two characters. So he may have been doing it partly for the sake of the film as well. You want to think so, that, oh, He's going the old method route then. Yeah, kind of, sort of uh, getting out his own demons and helping the film at the same time, I would guess. Which worked, because, I mean, essentially, Quint is supposed to be a bit of a, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say, but, yeah, he's supposed to be a bit of a pain as a person. Yeah, cabron is the word in Spanish, if you want to cover yourself by using a Spanish uh, expletive. Yeah, okay. but I think, um, yeah, but you're still rooting for the three of them and you're a bit gutted when Quint dies. Yeah, he was he's sort of an Ahab figure, wasn't he? And even, yeah. uh, I don't know if you know this, but Steven Spielberg wrote a complete script for Jaws and he had a scene of Robert Shaw in the cinema watching Moby Dick and laughing. Right. How bad it was. I think they used that for Cape Fear. Uh, when Max Cady, Robert De Niro's in the cinema laughing at a film. 
like right. laughing really loud and putting everybody off. Yeah. So Robert Shaw, the Quint is very close to Ahab, really. Um, proving that, you know, you could take old ideas and make them your own. But, um, I, I could I could talk about Jaws forever. Great film, one of my favorite yeah, films of all yeah. time. Already covered it on Film Gold. We did a commentary. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> we we did yeah. we did a rewatch at home, me and Louise. So we watched uh, Jaws. The, for anybody interested in England, the Jaws films are all available for free on Amazon Prime to watch. Oh, are they? Right. Um, right. So we watched the first one, which is classic. Watch the second one, which I don't think is anywhere near as bad as some people make it out to be. I think it's got yeah, positives. It's, okay. it, it's got yeah. positives, but it's also got some negatives as well. And one of the big problems he had with the second one is the fact that they couldn't get Richard Dreyfus back because he was busy making mm. um, Close Encounters, I think. Mm. Yeah, they managed to get Roy Scheider, didn't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then um, you run into serious problems when you get to the third one. Yeah. Did you watch yeah, the we, third and fourth yeah. one? We we watched the third one. Yeah. Um, and it was Louise's first time, I think, watching the third one. And mm. and then I said, "Oh, we've got we've got the fourth one to watch next week, which I've never seen, and we still haven't watched it, even though it was weeks, like a couple of months ago. We've still not got round to the fourth one because it's like, do we really want to watch something that is?" renowned for being really bad well without giving too much away his wife ellen Brody, from the first film yep thinks thinks that the shark has a vendetta against their family that the shark is actually the family of this shark sort of swim have swum from the usa to the caribbean or wherever they are to to, to kill the rest of her family it's <laughs> <laughs> And Michael Kane, you know, I mean, there's a comedy value in sort of bloody hell, that's a big shark. It's that, it's, he doesn't say that line, but. <laughs> You're only supposed to blow the bloody shark up. Yeah, yeah. Think of it as a comedy, yeah. Watch it as a comedy and see if it works. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah said, I, might, I should do yeah. that. He, he actually said that he did that film so he could buy a new house. Yeah, yeah, money, that's yeah. what I mean. It, just that, finance a new house. Which is brilliant. That must, be, that must be a weird situation. You know, you can make a really bad film, but you know it's going to make loads of money. That's the slightly sort of disturbing aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. What's up, everybody? This is Chris from the podcast Real Film Reviewed, and you're listening to Marv on Pods Like Us. So when you're making the when you're getting ready to do the episodes, what sort of research do you do? Do you watch the films multiple times, take loads of notes, and then uh, a lot of online, you know, searches and finding out sort of little tidbits? So, yep, yeah, what do you do then? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I used to make a lot of notes more than I do now. I still make quite a few, but I sort of learned to trust a bit more, trust myself a little bit more. Yeah, I will watch the film. Typically just once, uh, two or three days before the recording. Uh, there are certain films that I really wouldn't even need. I didn't watch Rocky before we talked about it cause, just because I know the film inside out. I just didn't even need to. But generally, yes, watch it with a pen and paper, old-fashioned. And then I used to listen to other podcasts about the film. Again, I probably listened to one 
I don't want to start sort of taking out of people's ideas. So if it's a film that I find quite baffling, maybe, or it's quite nice to hear other interpretations of it, then, you know, makings of pop up online and there's lots of good film analysis channels. And then I suppose Wikipedia and IMDb just go through the trivia and then I generally try and have a personal story related to one of the films. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it really. But try not to try not to kill it, you know, try and leave a bit of uh, bit for when you do the recording. And when we did Rocky recently, quite a lot of stuff came up in the moment, which is always good. You've got to leave that leave that sort of space. So yeah. I used to over-prepare in the old days, but not anymore. Yeah, sometimes mm. I think if you uh, do too much beforehand, it can almost sound scripted in a sense where mm. you're just following and going blah, 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 blah. But do you write notes based upon a specific structure that you have for the episodes or or is it more free-flowing, the episode? Um, I have, like, little prompts. But, yeah, I would have the structure because generally the guest wants to know what the structure is but it's pretty simple really i mean i i normally put a trailer i put the trailer at the beginning obviously in audio form um and then we go through the sort of particulars of the film you know when it was made when we did rocky just recently we were talking about the other films that were nominated for best picture because that was just a crazy crazy year for good films um yeah, I go through the actors, and then I sort of go through the plot, not scene by scene, but we said at the early part of the film is this. So something like Jaws, you've got this classic three-act thing. Yeah. So I kind of think of it in that sense, three acts. So I talk yeah. about each one for about 20 minutes, but you're, you're always leaving space for stuff to happen. You know, because sometimes the... the the review comes out very different than the way you imagined it. But that's generally what I do. And then themes, of course, because I think Film Gold, with, I have a tendency to analyse and overanalyze everything, really. So films is so perfect for that. Um, so the themes of the film. Also, at the beginning, yeah, the, the, the guest's history with the film. How many times have they seen it? What were their initial impressions? That kind of thing. But it just tends to flow. So I get I get someone on who loves the film, and I love it as well. And you could always do it without notes, but I like to just have a few prompts just in case. Yeah, like so that you don't get any dead air. Yeah, dead air is a crime. It is. Because editing, I don't do, do many live ones. When I had Rob on, I kind of felt like I wanted to do like a live video with him. We did Night of the Living Dead, but generally it's audio, and I... I feel happy that I can record and just sort of not worry about it because I can take care of bits later on. So, yeah. We've been doing it a while, haven't we? So So that nicely leads into the next one then, which is the recording and editing of the show. Well, still the same as the the first time I talked to you. Audacity, record on some combination of Skype, Zoom, Clean feed, Zencaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Audacity hasn't failed me yet. The Yeti mic and the Audacity. Yeah. Magic combination. One thing I actually, uh, one thing I haven't quite worked out, because I alternate here. Sometimes I have the opening music into the trailer, 
into the conversation. And sometimes it's the trailer into the opening music, into the conversation. And I seem to just do it depending on how, how I feel in the moment. Um, but uh, I love, um, when I'm editing, I love using zooms in and zo not zooms in, sorry, fades in and fades out. So sometimes it's nice. Um, I have the opening music. And then if the trailer starts with something explosive yeah, or some noise, you have uh, the music just coming out as that comes in. So I make use of fades, which I've always liked. But, yeah, I don't know what I've got for editing. It seems to work fine. I was sort of thinking about kicking up a notch sort of technologically, but I don't know. It seems all right. <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah. Why fix it? Mm. Mm. So you've, you've touched on a little bit there the sound. As I've got this next section, it says sound, music, and samples. So the music and the sounds that you get, and mm. so how do you um, how do you work those? In, and where did they come from? Uh, there's not so many in film gold. Obviously, Glass Onion. I use a ton of clips. Um, yeah, I just just read the audio of the trailer generally, and then there's occasionally like when we did Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I just couldn't resist putting clips. Uh, they just come from YouTube or they come from, uh, I have an archive that I had years ago. That's more for music clips, but yeah, just the usual places really. But I, I don't load it with uh, samples. Like with um, Taxi Driver, which will be out. I'm editing it now, so that'll be out. I, I put the trailer at the beginning and then I couldn't resist putting that rom-com trailer in. Yeah, there's right on YouTube. There's a funny. Um, is taxi driver is a rom com. It's like a Travis is single in the city looking for love, <laughs> and they work it with the the sort of wacky music that they would use for a rom com. So I, I put that in at the end after the music, so it's sort of top and tailing it a little bit. <laughs> so that's quite funny. Yeah, I don't really use samples as much because uh, they they take hours. I mean, when I when I was doing the last glass onion. Just to put the samples, to edit them and put them in, was about four hours. Yeah. It's like, wow, where did that, where did that time go? <laughs> so there's not so many in film gold. It's a bit more straight. Yeah. <laughs> so then, what would you say are your five must-see films? Yes, I did prepare this. Um, uh, this. This is not what I think are the five best films. This is just a little bit of a cross-section. Uh, so the one that's number one on my flick chart is Raging Bull. Yeah. Um, but I probably wouldn't call this a must-see for everyone because it's... If you have any interest in boxing, I think it's a must-see because it's... It's almost... It's what you might call hyper-realism. So where Rocky was a bit... Well, the first film was all right, but where Rocky became very unrealistic. Yeah. You just get pounded 300 times in the head and not going down. Raging Bull, they went for realism, but there's some very kind of visceral, you see sort of a close-up of someone being slammed. Yeah. I'm not selling it very well. Slammed in the nose and then all this, not either blood or sweat or whatever, pours off them. It's very, very visceral. So it's probably not a must-see for everyone, but it's my number one because I think stylistically it's just, yeah, really astonishing. Uh, the second one, uh, this is a Robert Shaw recommendation. 
well known but not massively well known, the taking of Pelham One Two Three from nineteen seventy four. Yeah, which found its way to number four. Hang on a sec. It's either number three or number four. Number three of my flex chart are 1,500 films. <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a... I love heist films and I love Robert Shaw, so I knew I'd like that. But uh, it's a very clever film and it has a really good resolution of how the final guy gets caught. Uh, for Hitchcock, so many, but I'd probably say Rear Window. Yeah. Which we have reviewed from with Matt from Pop Goes the 60s. I know you know that channel. Yeah, yeah, I love the I love the limited setting films. So when they're all in one place, and uh, yeah, I love Rear Window. It's, I think it's great. And it's a sort of slow build, slow reveal. It's a kind of a whodunit. Hmm. Well, that uh, Rear Window. I mean, it's it's incredible because of the fact that the whole they basically created an entire street hmm. in in the sound stages where the where they filmed it. So. The set for that is incredible for a film from yeah, that period. Court, yeah, it's a courtyard, isn't it? It's a whole yeah. huge set, yeah. And James Stewart also had to react to things that were happening, but he couldn't actually see them. So he had to look and then react. But, yeah, it's a great film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. I was thinking of Apocalypse Now, because, again, that's something like four of my flick charts. I thought just for something different, um, just to show you what it can be like making a film like that, uh, the documentary Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Francis Ford Coppola's wife was making notes and maybe making an audio diary of some kind when they were making it. And it took uh, two to three years. Martin Sheen had a heart attack. Wow. He played the main character. They had all the trouble with Brando. He'd sit around for days discussing the script because Brando knew that he was getting sort of paid per the paid per day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, just because you you'll get to know a lot of the film as well if you haven't seen it through watching that documentary. And then finally, um, yeah, sort of the granddaddy, but Citizen Kane. But I would highly recommend watching some sort of audio commentary, listening to some sort of audio commentary or making of. Again, there's a good one that was hosted by or narrated by Barry Norman. Yeah. So um, I definitely think Citizen Kane, you really, after you've seen it, you have to, you need a bit of help with it to see how great it is, really. Because it's hard to think of it, oh, this is the greatest film ever. If you just think this is the greatest film ever and then just watch it from a 2022 perspective, you're probably not going to understand why. And I'm not saying it's the greatest ever, but you really need to know what hadn't gone before to appreciate it. So that's five out of a possible 500 <laughs> I could have chosen. But for anybody interested, uh, uh, Barry Norman, he, he used to do a film review show. Um, so it was called Film and then whatever year it was, so Film Film 82 or whatever. I think I still call it Film 89 or something, I think, even all these years later. Yeah. And his father was the British filmmaker Leslie Norman. Oh, I didn't know that. As in director? Yes, yeah, yeah. Director and producer, yeah. Right. Did he make any famous ones? Oh, you know, you're catching me out now. (laughs) I don't know. 
So while I look up that... Um, okay. Actually, I think this is a bit more of an in-depth uh, subject. The state of cinema. What What do you think of that comment yeah. that, that's been going around about, you know... Um, the the Marvel comment that was that was put out of it being you know like popcorn film or did they call it like a um, um, oh like a thrill ride almost or or something like some I can't remember how this how they worded it now but as somebody who likes these sort of films some of, some of them I will say mm. that I think the problem. The problem is, and I don't think that the the lockdown has helped matters in a way, because then they've had this backlog of films that they weren't able to put out. Mm. And then the film studios, when suddenly we came out of lockdown across the world, they had all these films. And it's like they basically... It's understandable if you're looking at this as a business, Mm. but they picked the films where they thought, these are the ones that will make the money. These are the ones that mm. probably won't make so much money. So the ones that they're thinking wouldn't make so much money, they threw straight onto streaming services, and then they put the block, mm. put the big, big hitters out in the cinema, which I think is not not fair in a way because you need all the different types of film out there. Essentially, you, you see, you need popcorn films. You know, you need the. I mean, I said to someone that the, the Marvel films are almost like the Star Wars of their time, in a sense. Mm. But mm. you need a mix of film in the cinema. Where, so you might, if if they kept going that way, there's a potential that they'll lose a specific audience who go for the more visceral film as opposed to a film that's popcorn, explosions and... Tells you everything essentially without having to think about them. Yeah, well, they've obviously got to make money, and like I said, it's it's a smart move to yeah put put the ones you're pretty sure are going to be money makers in the cinema, and then play a bit safe, put the other ones in streaming services. Um, what was the other thing we were talking about? Yeah, yeah, I think I think the proportion of I think the popularity of popcorn films versus art house films, the proportion probably hasn't changed. Um, but it's it's very hard to know now, isn't it? Yeah. Because if someone, uh, I know they've done stats for streaming services, but there seems to be at the same time an appetite for popcorn films, but possibly a growing appetite for more thoughtful things. Um, but, uh, yeah, my unfortunately my trajectory with films. About two thousand and ten, I stopped watching current stuff, and I keep half an eye on it. As I said earlier, but um, so it's hard for me to say. I haven't seen any of the Marvel films. Right, I'm not sure if I've ever been interested in sort of any superhero. I suppose Superman, and when I was a kid, it's hard for me to say. I think one trend which is absolutely certain. And it reflects our culture is uh, sort of low attention span. Yeah. So it's almost a presumption that we have low attention spans. So everything has got to be sort. Of <laughs> and trailers actually all seem to literally have that sort of <laughs> sound. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. kind of explosion sound. Um, 
But I, I think it's just gradually that's happening where everything is lower and lower attention span. And I, I do find it difficult. I find a lot of foreign films, um, other ones I watch are the more recent ones. Like Gaspar Noé is just, I think it's just an astonishing filmmaker. There's a film called Irreversible that definitely would, I wouldn't recommend to people. Have you seen that? No, I've not seen it. I've heard of it, but I've oh not seen it. Oh, my God. It's really rough. But, you know, if you're, if you're into seeing the dark side of life, I think he's amazing. But uh, I think this is a total generalisation, but a lot of European films tend to be just shot in a slightly different way, you know. And I, I just gravitate towards those, and I find myself now going on to different websites and seeking out older stuff old obscurities from the past so I'm probably not the best person to I could probably give you some sort of curmudgeonly <laughs> thing about how film isn't what it used to be <laughs> yeah. but I think that low attention is bad thing and the thing of they're so expensive now that they are liable to play safe because there are certain ones that you'll know Heaven's Gate and Ishtar yeah. in the 80s that almost bankrupted in Apocalypse Now so I don't think they ever want to take the risk of almost bankrupt bankrupting the company with one film. <laughs> yeah. So I think less risks and, and lower attention span. Yeah. A film of Leslie Norman's that jumps out to me would be The Cruel Sea. By the way, that's that's one of oh, his yeah. films, which is which is a oh, fantastic war film. He directed that, yeah, and he co-wrote the script as well. Oh. Oh, a lot, a lot of the great so he was a name. Second World War films that you see on the television are actually directed by Leslie Norman. Oh, right, right, right. So that's how Barry I have a long career as well. I wonder, I wonder if Barry Norman grew up critiquing his father's films. <laughs> Must be not. maybe. I, I seem to remember. Yeah, he says, you know. I seem to remember. I've I've read. Um, I think I've read a, a biography of, uh, of Barry Norman's, and there's stories there of him actually being on set when his when his father was actually make, doing the films, and he'd be behind there just watching and taking in what his what his dad was doing. So, in oh, a way, I think that probably helped Barry then as a uh, as a critic to understand the machinations of what goes on behind the scenes with filmmaking so that he could he could look at the film from that angle and know where the filmmaker's possibly coming from. Yeah, maybe be a bit more sympathetic. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, do you think uh, critics, how many films a year do you think a critic would watch? Are they watching something every day, do you think? I suppose they must do. Somebody like mm. Ebert must have been watching films constantly. Because if that's your sole job, I suppose. Yeah. No, I like, but I think Barry Norman was, um, he just had the voice and the delivery and everything, didn't he? And of course, that um, amazing theme tune as well. Yes. Yeah. Which I didn't realise for years was, um, uh, what is it? I wish I knew what it means to be free. That's by it. Nina Simone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she did one version, but we only ever heard that brilliant bit of piano at the beginning. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the film program was a big thing. 
No, films have been with me, you know, my whole, whole life, really. Unlike music, when I was a kid, I would watch more adult, no, no not that kind of adult, films for adults. And yeah. if I could just tell a quick story, I had a friend um, called Edmund, who's been on Glass Onion, actually, one of the bonus episodes. Yeah. His mother had an amazing collection. In those days, it was VHS. Some she'd bought and some were blank VHS tapes that she'd filled up with old films. And I just, yeah, got to know them. So I've always had that association. I find some black and white films a bit laughable at times. And when we do reviews, we do make fun of them a little bit. There's a there's a podcast I was on called Classic Film Jerks. Yep. Yeah, and we we did Hard Day's Night, and I kind of found myself making fun of it a bit, but still like it. Right. Well, just because that was the nature of the podcast, really. They had this thing called So Old. They had this section called So Old, really. And they talk about how in old films, it's like people could just walk into government buildings or, or yeah. things that you never see anymore, like lemonade stands or whatever it is, just just stuff like that. Um. So, but but then certain old films, I'm just just massively drawn to Hitchcock being an obvious one. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We we watched Rope the other day, which is one of my favourite Hitchcock films. Yeah, we've done a review of that. Yeah, it's a great one, yeah. Again, limited setting. Yeah. All in one apartment, more or less in real time. And mi- uh, mistakenly called a one-shot film because it actually isn't a one-shot. It's one mm. shot up until a certain bit where it uh, where the camera goes and it goes, is it is it uh, James Stewart's back or something? The camera goes to James Stewart's back and then... It's a very quick edit, so it'll go there, and then it'll come back around, back mm. to the scene or whatever. And what's happened there is, it's used that almost like a blackout mm. that you'd, you'd see in some films. So essentially, it's one shot up until there, and then they had to change the film of the camera yeah. because film in a camera only has so much time in it. And then mm. they uh, started shooting again, and it. And it pulls, and it sort of like carries on across and back into the scene there. So it's actually a two-shot film, not a one-shot, because the tape wasn't long enough to be able to do it all in one shot. Yeah, reels only held about ten minutes of film in those days. Yeah, yeah, it's very clever because they're all wearing dark suits, aren't they? Yeah. So it's various characters, I think. So the camera comes behind them, as you said, just for a second. The screen is black, so they were able to change the reel. But then they made uh, they made that kind of into the film. Yeah. They did a very clever thing at the, at the end where they actually open the chest and there's a body in it. Yep. They actually made that the bit where they changed the reel. So they open the chest and the screen yep. goes black. So yep. like the way they combine those two things together. But yeah, that's a that's a that's a big one for me as well. That was that was a film well, I saw very early. To to me, that film when I watch it I'm I'm watching it and I'm thinking, essentially, it's Hitchcock filming a play because it's because mm. it is in one place and mm. and so you've only got it from the one position as well. You don't get different camera angles or this camera from there, that camera from there. It's all single in that camera there, mm. and that's 
So it's almost like he was purposely, he'd already prepared knowing that he was going to do this. And it's really smart how he's done it because he knows that he's worked out when the tape is going to run out. So he knows mm. he knows to tell the camera to sort of like go across there to the back and that's where the tape runs out. Stop, mm. change the reel, carry on. And so it's really smart how he's actually worked that into the whole aesthetic of the film. Yeah, it was a nightmare to, to, to make as well because there are actually some production photos where they show you the floor and the floor is just full of like actors' marks yeah. but also wires. So they had to worry about tripping over wires as well. It's incredible. If you ever watch the film, try and imagine if the camera panned down to the floor, which obviously it wouldn't, but yeah. imagine if they did that and you'd actually see what it took to make that. Yeah, that's sort of a magical film for me. I think it's... It's not perfect, but it's uh, yeah. I think I think they suffered for their art there. Must be very rough. Imagine if you made a mistake after nine minutes, fifty seconds. Oh yes. Oh yeah. They'd have to do the whole of the previous nine minutes or whatever yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah, but they had a lot of marks. It's very very difficult film to make, but worth it. Okay. Did it take a long time to make that film then? Uh, I don't know if it was a long time. I think no. I think it, I think it was just the conditions of it. I'm sure they made mistakes, but obviously you're saving time by doing ten minute takes. On the one hand, yeah. I've never I've never known how many takes they took for each of the ten minutes. I've never never looked at that. So I suppose on the one where they the one where they save time, and then it's it's tricky. Yeah. I don't think it took us particularly long time though. Mm. But then but then with that you've also got the plus point or Hitchcock did where he's using people that he's used to. So you've got, you mm. know, you've got James Stewart who's good, reliable, and he knew he'd already worked with Stewart before then. And mm. and you've also got Farley Granger who had already used in like Strangers on a Train and films like that. So mm. in a sense, it's like he'd picked these people knowing their abilities before going into the film and making the film. So he sort of knew that they'd be on their marks and they'd be hot and know what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's true with the crew as well. I think in a way it's actually the crew that they want to work with most, uh, yeah. most regularly. So like I think Woody Allen has had the, almost the same crew well, for a huge part of his career. Yeah, it must help when you've got reliable, yeah, James Stewart, Cary Grant. You know they're going to do a job for you, don't they? Absolutely. So what advice would you give to people this time then starting the podcast? Uh, probably the same. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe what – I think I probably spend a long time editing them and maybe I make them a bit too – I take out all the ers and ums, and it does take a long, long time. So, I don't know. When I listen to other shows, I actually don't notice that there's ers and ums after a while. So, perhaps my advice would be not to take as long editing as I do. <laughs> yeah. Unless you are, I don't know. I don't know if it's perfectionism or it, it, it's just such a nice feeling when you hear it back. Um, I would say with if it's a film podcast, I would say keep it to a manageable length, perhaps 
because there are ones out there that three hours or however long. If you love the film, that obviously works for you. But yeah, I think the original advice I gave when I when we did the Glass Onion show was make it smooth, but not too smooth. Don't make it too slick. But now, of course, podcasting is changing because it's becoming um, a money making enterprise, which I think it should be. You know, depending on the amount of effort you put in. You know, yep. So perhaps it's moving towards the slick, but I don't really want podcasts to become radio shows because then you lose that freedom and you notice, you know, they're getting more and more censored as well. Yeah. And to have a clean podcast, you can't have any swearing and stuff. But uh, if it's not a money-making thing, obviously have fun, you know, have fun with it. Um, and with films, I would, I would go for films you love, really. Because then that will carry the show almost. You know, don't make too many notes. Just have a few prompts. That's how it works for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> so where can people find you and get hold of the show? Right. Well, it seems like Twitter is a good place. And I'm just looking. Yeah. At FilmGold75, capital F, capital G. I have a website, Anthony without an H, Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O.com. Just got everything, my music, my blog, my podcasts. But yeah, basically everywhere, really, film gold. I have a YouTube channel called Contra Fib, which you'll know is a Blackadder reference. Yeah. Contrafibularities. <laughs> C-O-N-T-R-A-F-I-B. And that's got a mixture of music and film. So I put probably about two-thirds of the film gold episodes on that channel. But obviously they're everywhere. It's, I do it through Anchor. So yeah, Film Gold, pretty much everywhere you find podcasts. And you can find Pods Like Us on any streaming platform. And we are on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. But anyway, thank you for speaking with me today, Anthony. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, mate. And thank you all for listening. And I hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. Bye-bye. What's up? Hmm. Do I look at you or the camera? That's what I always worry about. Because it seems weird to have a conversation when you look at the camera and not look at the person who's talking to you. Isn't it? That's true. That is true. That's... Yeah. I'll look at you, I think. Seems more natural. Yeah, because otherwise it's almost like breaking a fourth wall. Mm. Yeah. Hello, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we haven't officially started yet, have we? No. Okay. Okay. Okay.